upon us. We're just waiting for the broadcast uh, to be set up there. So we'll have a word of prayer. We'll seek the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we come to, to thee today, the commencement of our time in thy house. We look to thee for thy blessing to be upon us, for the power of thy spirit. O Lord, come and minister thy truth to our hearts. Teach us, we pray, in thy ways. And we do look to thee that thou would be pleased to meet our needs this day as we worship thee. We pray our souls would be fed, that we would rejoice in thee and in thy presence. We do remember the Sunday school downstairs, bless. We pray, bless all the children, the teachers. May they have a blessed time learning of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. And Father, we look to thee. Come today, we pray. Come and meet our needs. Come and do us good. And as we move further in our study in the history of thy church, Father, bless us and meet each of our needs. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to turn this morning to two passages of Scripture. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And we'll read some verses from the verse 20. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. And from the verse 20, the Word of God says, speaking of the Saviour, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you, when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Amen. And then we'll move to Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. And the Apostle Paul is preaching there in Athens. He has drawn attention to the altar that is set up to the unknown God, and he tells those who are listening who the unknown God is, the God of heaven, the God of the scriptures. And he applies this in verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Amen. And uh, we have there uh, a summary of what the gospel is, what the gospel is about, and the great need uh, that we see preached and presented in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
being the Savior, uh, but also the need for man to repent from his sin. And so today, moving on in our study of the history of the church, we come to the era of Constantine, and we're going to consider the Christian Sabbath if we have time as well. And so the Emperor Constantine was born, as I think we have previously considered, in 272 AD in what is known today as Serbia. He ruled in the Roman Empire from 306 to 337. His father was Flavius Constantine. He was an army officer who had been a member of the ruling, one of the ruling parties, influential in the government of the nation and in the system by which the divided empire was governed. His mother, Helena, was a Greek Christian, and she was later canonized as a saint and is traditionally believed to have been influential in the conversion of her son to Christianity. Constantine then is known as the first emperor to convert from pagan worship to Christianity. He had served under the emperors Diocletian and Galerius, and after his father's death in 306, he was recognized by his army as the emperor in York in England. Uh, the city of York in England is a very historic city. I lived about 40 miles uh, from the city of York for a number of years. I have been there many times. It had an influence from the Vikings and also uh, through the Romans as well. It was an important city. And of course, moving into medieval England and the era of the kings of England, York was also very famous and influential. There were several wars that followed, and by 324, Constantine became the sole ruler of the empire. As we've noted before, Emperor Galerius had ceased the persecution of Christians in 311. He had issued an edict of toleration. And at that time, the Eastern Empire was divided between Licinius and Maximinius Dea. Dea had started persecuting the church again in the regions that he controlled in Asia Minor, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. Uh, the Western Empire itself had been divided between Con Constantine, who ruled Britain, and France and Spain, and Maxentius, who was anti-Christian. He ruled Italy and northwest Africa. And war broke out then in the Western Empire, and Constantine invaded Italy. The two sides stood against each other across the Malivian Bridge, across the Tiber, outside of Rome, the Tiber being the river in Rome. And Constantine at this point was still a pagan. He worshipped the sun. But on the eve of the battle, it is said, and of course this is myth or legend, it is said that he had a dream in which the first two letters of the name Christ in the Greek language appeared in the sky in the shape of a cross. He also heard the word by this sign, ye shall conquer. He then prayed to the Christian God for victory, and he won the battle with Maxentius being killed. And after the battle, Constantine, believing that God had given him the victory, became the protector of Christians. His conversion to Christianity is often considered one of the most important conversions in the history of the Church of Christ because persecution had ended. 
Christianity became an acceptable faith and religion and began to grow and grow into what we have and see and experience today. And so he became the protector of Christians. However, there are doubts as to whether his conversion constitutes what we would define as a real and genuine and biblical conversion experience. S.M. Houghton, who wrote Sketches of Church History, published by Banner of Truth, said that it is very doubtful whether Constantine was ever a true convert. His predecessors had persecuted the church for political reasons. He favored them on similar grounds and showed himself willing to continue the policy of toleration, which had, in fact, been introduced about a year before he won his victory. It was a turning point in the history of the empire and even more so in the history of the Christian church. Constantine himself was known for having a moral character. He was generous and had a sense of justice and morality. He endeavored to live a pure life, but he was also susceptible to the dangers of power and fame. It is said that he was suspicious of family and friends, which was common for kings and emperors in history. His eldest son, by the name of Crispus, was born in 300. He was a colleague or a Caesar for his father from 317 to 326 when he was executed and without trial. Constantine's second wife was executed shortly after. Uh, there have been various theories as to why his son was executed, uh, but the reality is that the reasons may never be known. And so there are concerns by Christians and historians as to the reality of what happened on the eve of the battle and his profession of Christianity. And those doubts are reinforced by the various executions, especially of his son, and questions have been asked whether these actions were the actions of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Constantine also appeared to favor the Arian heresy in his later years. Philip Schaff, the historian, said that he had an imposing and winning person and was compared by flatterers with Apollo being one of the gods. He was tall, broad-shouldered, handsome, and of a remarkable, vigorous, and healthy constitution. But given to excessive vanity in his dress and outward demeanor, always wearing an oriental diadem, a helmet studded with jewels, and a purple mantle of silk richly embroidered with pearls and flowers worked in gold. His mind was not highly cultivated, but naturally clear, strong, and shrewd, and seldom thrown off its guard. It is said, he is said to have combined a cynical contempt of mankind with an inordinate love of praise. He possessed a good knowledge of human nature and administrative energy and tact. And so the question then arises, was this change to the acceptance of Christianity by Constantine and by the society and the empire for the better? And positively then, we could see the persecution had ended, and now the emperor followed the Christian faith, and this led to the building of churches. This led to the financing of bishops and preachers throughout the empire. The Christian Sabbath, Sunday, was now recognized as a day in which the Christian rested from labor and worshipped the God of heaven. And no doubt all this was received with thankfulness by Christians and was a blessing because things had changed. 
They could practice their faith without fear of persecution. However, <coughs> negatively, there arose great dangers within the church. There was now a distinguished and honorable thing to be a Christian. And this meant that people turned to Christianity not for salvation, not to follow Christ, but for the honor and the prestige and position within society. I want you to turn to John 6 and the verse 26. And here the Savior says, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. And what is the Savior saying? You're looking me. You're following me. You're seeking after me. Why? Not because of the miracles, the miracles that pointed to him being God. Not because of the miracles that spoke of his divinity and his deity and pointed to him being in this context, the loaves being the bread of life and the provider for his people. But rather they sought him because he filled their bellies. Same way we could say that some may follow after a particular man because he's a good cook or a good chef. You buy his books. You maybe go to his restaurant. You watch his programs uh, because this person can provide great food. And we see that here. They followed not because the miracles meant something to them spiritually, not because Christ was everything to them, but because they benefited. Their bellies were filled. And so there is a warning then in Scripture about that. And we see as well in Luke 6, verse 26, Woe unto you, and all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. There's a warning in Scripture about following after Christ, for our own gain, and a warning about all men speaking well of us. The world speaks well of the church, then the church is doing something wrong because the church is not taking the stand that it ought to take for the Savior. It's taking a step back. When we look at many churches today, they have crossed the line. They have embraced the ideas and the agendas of this sinful and wicked world and therefore the world will speak well of the church because in reality the church is the world and the church is part of the world because they have set aside the scriptures and set aside the commandments of Christ to follow after the ideals of the world. And when we think of Christianity and when we think of what is happening here, Christians were spoken well of. Christianity had raised its, its reputation within society. It was now a good thing and something of prestige and honor to be a Christian, to be of the same religion as the emperor. And many then followed Christianity not because Christ was their savior, not because they were convicted of sin and bowed the knee, but because they could get something out of it. And we can look through church history. We can see that. Martin Luther spoke of that. He spoke of men in position within the church. 
and the great honor and prestige regarding that. But men who were blind, men who lived in sin, he went to Rome and saw the wickedness of society in the most holy city we could say in Europe, the seat of the church, the center point for worship. And he saw the great iniquity and the vileness, the dens of depravity in that city. And so there's a reminder here for us about following Christ. The importance of the true gospel. Was Constantine, was Constantine truly saved? Was he truly a child of God? The Lord knows. The Lord knows his heart. But in what we've looked at today, there's no mention of an experience of repentance and faith toward the Savior. He got something out of it. He got his victory. But the Lord knows his heart. But we see the importance of understanding the true gospel. And throughout church history, we see a corruption of that gospel. And as the Roman Catholic Church begins to rise in the years following uh, Constantine and what happened here, uh, we see a setting aside of the true gospel and setting aside of biblical doctrines for the ideas of men. And so in Acts 17, we are reminded of what the true gospel is. Paul is preaching to those who've never heard the gospel. And he says in verse 30 of Acts 17, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God winked at, not a, a literal wink like a boy winking at a girl, uh, but God ignored it. He turned a blind eye to this at this point in time, but now there's a command for all men everywhere to repent. And that command is upon us all. It's upon the emperor. It's upon you and I. It's upon society within this world. They are commanded by God, all men everywhere, to repent and turn from sin. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And the true gospel is a gospel of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again for our justification. It's repentance. And we ought always to remember and understand the true teaching and the true doctrines and the true purpose of the gospel of Christ and the importance of a true word true conversion, knowing we're saved and knowing we're redeemed and knowing we belong to the Lord. Because one of the great problems in the church today is that of false conversion. There are those who like the atmosphere in the church or like the music in the church or, or go to the church just to feel good about themselves. I've spoken to many over the years who think that everything is well with their souls because they go to church. I've spoken to Roman Catholics who, because they go to the Roman Catholic Church, they believe all is well with their soul. They don't need to worry about the future. They go to church. They live a relatively good and moral life. They have nothing to worry about. And there's Protestants who think the exact same. Because they go to church, because they attend, because they are faithful, 
all is well. I've maybe said before, but I spoke to a man one time who was involved in the Orange Order in Northern Ireland, the Orange Order uh, being those who uh, march every 12th of July to remember the Protestant king defeating the Catholic king in 1690. There's more to it than that. And uh, that's, I suppose, a very quick and basic summary. Uh, but uh, they stand for the Reformation principles and uh, the truths of the gospel, but yet it's an organization filled with many who are outside of Christ and many who are unsaved. And this individual was one of those men involved in the Orange Order, outside of Christ, was very thankful to churches for opening their doors to have services and to have commemorations regarding the Reformation, etc., etc. But he knew nothing of Christ within his life and the experience of salvation. He thought, oh, because he was in the Orange Order and because he was a Protestant and because he had a somewhat moral life, all was well with him. But he was not resting on Christ for faith and repentance. When we look at the life of Constantine, that is something that our attention is drawn to. As I said, God knows his heart. But yet, the true gospel is a gospel where we rest upon Christ for faith. We come to Christ in repentance. We believe upon him as our Savior. The gospel and Christ are those means by which our sin, our personal sin, is dealt with. Then we have the issue of Constantine and the executions as well. And we also need to understand that not every man not every woman has a vibrant faith that is matured, that is sanctified. There are believers who are very weak in their faith. And it is the responsibility of more mature believers to encourage them. But there are many believers who don't understand the great truths of the gospel. They don't understand the importance of sanctification or the importance of personal holiness or being separated unto the Lord they trust in the basic fundamentals of the gospel and so there can be a lack of knowledge regarding those things and that leads to a lack of maturity and a lack of sanctification because they're not progressing in the Christian life but yet their faith is genuine their faith is genuine they lack the teaching and have never been exposed to the teaching by which God would use to sanctify them. And so we are reminded of the importance of the true gospel and the importance of holding to that and believing that and that that is the only way of salvation. And so Constantine turning to Christianity led to the church changing in its structure and in its essence. It came out of poverty and humility into pomp and ceremony and pride. S.M. Houghton said that Constantine granted to the church the right to receive gifts and legacies, and he himself enriched it with gifts. From this time, the church became a rich corporation, and a worldly spirit entered into it. Before long, bishops ruled in large cities as pagan governors had formerly done. They set an example of luxurious living, 
which contradicted the instruction of the master, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And so great buildings were erected. There was wealth poured into the church. And the emperor himself decided that he would rule the church. This was in direct opposition to Ephesians 5.23, where it says that Christ is the head of his church, and that is something for us to remember and hold to. Christ is the great king and head of his church. But Constantine called meetings of bishops, and such meetings were presided in his name, one of those being the First Council of Nicaea. They met in 325. We'll come to consider this history later on uh, in next year. Uh, but it was called by the emperor to deal with the matter of the nature of God, God the Son, and his relationship to God the Father in the context of Arian doctrine. And it resulted in the formulation of the Nicene Creed. It's interesting history. It is said, and uh, it is, I suppose, another myth or legend uh, that Arius, who was promoting this false doctrine, had a confrontation with St. Nicholas, who was, I suppose, uh, we all know who <laughs> jolly old St. Nick is, uh, but St. Nicholas, being the man in the church from whom part of the uh, idea of Santa Claus came from, and how uh, he punched Arius in the face uh, when he was uh, going on about his false doctrine. Whether that's true or not, uh, I don't know, uh, but uh, it is an interesting story uh, that has come from that uh, particular uh, council. And uh, so uh, we have there a history of punching heretics in the face. I'm not suggesting we go out and do that, uh, but we'll maybe consider that uh, on another time, that particular council. As M. Houghton said, it is a small wonder that under such conditions, the church increasing in stature and, and privilege and men joining who are not truly converted, it is a small wonder that under such conditions the signs of apostasy and heresy were shortly seen. And so persecution kept the church pure. Toleration introduced the elements which would negatively affect its future and lead to the rise of the Roman Catholic Church and system. And so persecution does keep the church pure. If you were under threat of your life, if you walked through the doors of this church this morning and you knew that by crossing in and sitting down, if certain individuals and authorities came into this building, found you here and would kill you, your life would be, your life would be gone because you came to church. Would you come? Would you come? Those who are nominal believers, those who don't truly believe, they would stay far away. The true believer, the one who loves Christ, puts him first. And so persecution kept the church pure, but it began to be very much watered down after the era of Constantine. And so we come to another subject, just briefly, the Christian Sabbath. And when we think of the Christian Sabbath, the apostles, they met in the upper room after the death of Christ, and we acknowledge the early church did not have churches as we have uh, today. But one of the accusations that comes against Constantine is that he changed the day of worship for the church. The Jews met on the Saturday, the seventh day, was that day set aside 
for the worship of God. God rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and sanctified it. And the Jews then met, as they continue to do to this day, on Saturday. And they worship God and have their religious services during that time. And some would state that the Sabbath day in Scripture most certainly refers to what we know today as Saturday. And it remained the day of worship until it was altered by the Emperor Constantine. It is said that only Christians, that early Christians would rest on the Jewish Sabbath, but they would worship on the Christian Sabbath. And Christians worship on Sunday, for it is the first day of the week. We see that Acts 20, Paul met together the first day of the week. And it is the day in which Christ rose again from the dead. The Bishop of Caesarea, Ignatius, said that in three said in three fourteen that for Christians the Sabbath had been transferred to a Sunday. And so prior to Constantine, prior to his declaration that Sunday would be the Christian Sabbath, the church recognized that day and worshipped the Lord on that day because it was the first day of the week and it was the day in which their Savior rose again from the dead. Philip Schaff said that the church fathers did not regard the Christian Sunday as a continuation of the Jewish Sabbath, but as a substitute for it. It is said that Ignatius was the first who contrasted Sunday with the Jewish Sabbath as something done away with. And Justin Martyr uh, did, uh, did say a, matter, a number of things before that as, uh, regarding that as well. And uh, there was some debate whether there was such a Sabbath, a perpetual rest in Christ. Uh, but Sunday was the day that they used. And there are a number of quotations in the notes from uh, Philip Shaft as well. And so when we think of this, it was on March the 7th, 321, that Constantine issued a civil decree making Sunday a day of rest from labor. Uh, but the church prior to Constantine had observed a Sunday Sabbath. Acts 20, Paul met the first day of the week, which we know as Sunday. And so Constantine merely recognized that day in law, that it was a day of rest. It would be a bit like the government of Canada saying, well, Sunday is the day when which Christians meet to worship God, and so we'll issue a decree and close everything down, and perhaps go back to what it used to be, and therefore that gives everyone and Christians the freedom from work to worship the God of heaven. Uh, but the change, there's much more to it. There's theological reasons. There's books that have been written about this particular subject and dealing with the change of day as well. Uh, but the church recognizes it because it is the day that Christ rose again from the dead. That's why we meet here today. And, of course, in laws, and laws in the United Kingdom centuries ago, Constantine as well, that was recognized by the government of the day. It was not a thing that Constantine instituted. He separated the day in law, but it was already separated in the church by those who worshipped the Lord. And so we come to the end of the era of Constantine. Uh, we will move into creeds and the Arian uh, Council or the Council Against Arius, the uh, Nicene Council, when we get back from uh, the break, Arianism was a false doctrine, a heresy that arose. We did deal with some false doctrines 
that arose in the church in the past. And we're coming to this one. It's the big one uh, that led to a council being formed. And uh, this teaching has arisen in different forms over the centuries as well. And some of its teaching infiltrated the uh, Presbyterian Church in Ireland 200, 250 years ago. There was a man there by the name of Dr. Henry Cook. He stood against it, almost a one-man one man band standing against this false doctrine. And as a result, uh, those who held to it uh, left the uh, Presbyterian Church in Ireland because they brought in the rule that ministers had to sign the confession of faith, which is what we do uh, today and what uh, the church in Ulster does. And it has its roots going back to Henry Cook. And of course, these heretics couldn't sign that. And so they left the church. They set up their own denomination called in Northern Ireland the Non-Subscribing Presbyterian Church or Unitarians. And today they are very liberal uh, in regard to the various agendas uh, that they hold to. And certainly in regard to LGBT are very supportive of that. And so they have moved more and more and more away from uh, biblical teaching. Uh, but the great source of all of that, or the great uh, heresies that led to this later on, uh, we see that in the doctrine of Arianism. And so we'll come to that in due course next year. Let us pray. Our eternal God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy goodness and mercy toward us. We thank thee that... As the church, we have relative peace to gather together to worship Thee. Uh, we thank Thee for this building, uh, this comfortable building in which we can meet uh, to worship Thee. And we thank Thee uh, for uh, this freedom we have. We thank Thee for even this facility. We realize that many of the early Christians uh, did not have anything uh, close to what we have today. And we thank Thee for Thy provision as a church and as a congregation. And we pray, Father, that coming here, we would always see it as a great privilege and a blessing from Thee, our God. And Father, we pray that we would hold fast to Thy truth, that we would know what it is to experience a true conversion and to stand truly for Thee. We pray that we would rejoice in the Sabbath day and the Lord's day as we meet together. May it, O oh God, be a day, as the Puritan said, the marked day of our souls, in which we come and receive the food and the sustenance that we need for the rest of the week. Father, feed our souls, bless us, and may we rejoice in the freedom we have to meet with thee today. Do us good, and we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. instead of first and it didn't pick that up and so it'll be a little editing and it's my intention to put it into pdf 
And so if anyone wants a copy of that, it'll be like a year's, a year's notes altogether. And so in the future, if anyone wants the notes, it can, come, it can come in a big PDF that you can view on your computer or something like that, something that is easily accessible. And so do, you know, you can bear that in mind uh, that uh, I think we'll put together over the break uh, the last eight, eight uh, classes and then uh, we can add to that uh, in June. It'll be quite a big document, I think, but uh, everything will be there, uh, easy to find, easy to send if anyone wants a fuller copy. So, thank you.